Thank you for listening to the Long Only Podcast. Jerry Fragon and Doug Conley work for Taylor Fragon Capital Management. All opinions expressed should not be relied upon for your individual investment advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Taylor Fragon Capital Management and its clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Welcome to the Long Only Podcast with Jerry Fragon. I am Doug Conley, I'm the co-host and we are going to talk about investing and whatever else we want to talk about. And in this inaugural episode, we're going to dive into some of the the methodologies and the philosophies that uh, we have as a firm, a firm founded by Jerry. Jerry, how are you doing today? Good, Doug. How are you doing? All right. So I think we'll start with just broadly speaking, our firm, the Taylor Forgotten Method, is a little bit countercultural in this day and age because we still engage in active management. Why is that? Well, I think if you're going to ultimately, almost by definition, if you're going to over time outperform averages, you have to do something that's different and you have to zig when it zags. And of course that can be favorable sometimes and other times can be unfavorable, at least over short periods. But if you're, if your goal is ultimately to, to get above average returns um, and I, and I would add, you know, significant returns to that as well is that you have to, you know, go against what the kind of common, you know, average is and, 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 you know, passive investing has kind of taken that to an extreme. Well, for people, when they, when people think of passive investing, they think of, they, they think of having no risk and, one of the things that, uh, you know, as I came to work for the firm that, that uh, I started taking notice of was that passive investing is, has risk for the individual. Obviously, we, anyone who's followed the markets knows that, that, look, the indices go up, the indices go down. I mean, in, the, in some of the crashes, we've seen 40, 50% drawdowns. But setting that, setting that aside for the moment, what are some of the, the more societal or economic uh problems with with passive investing well yeah i think if you if you just look at sort of the origins of passive investing um you go back to you know long time ago the the bernard malkiel random walk down wall street type stuff um which basically is the same as you know the monkey can throw darts at the wall and come up with just as much of a winning portfolio as active managers um i've always felt that there was a problem with that thinking if nothing else because you know what was the time frame we're looking at um, and if you take it to an extreme take you know uh, someone who who started a, a business and it's the only thing they ever invested in and they owned that company over decades and it did very well chances are good that it performed not only better than average but it absolutely obliterated if you were to have bought every company in the in the marketplace um, and so the problem I think, and, and where passive quote unquote, passive investing came from is that, um, the average money manager, uh, who, if you think about it is the market was often charged with, you know, you don't outperform the market or, you know, you're not, you're underperforming the market and woe is you for that. And that the average investor is better off not paying the fees to the, to a money manager and just owning what is essentially every company in the market. Um, 
let's say that the first one to ever take on that strategy, yeah, yeah, it may have been okay. And the theory being that you're you're participating in the growth in the economy, you're participating in the growth in the market, and uh, you know, selection or, or trying to figure out what are the right companies to be in doesn't matter very much. Well, I would just revert back to the original point and say, well, it does kind of matter <laughs> because that, that guy that, that started that company and that's all he ever owned. And, you know, there's plenty of examples of that. Um, you know, pick, pick a successful company in the marketplace, Amazon, um, Home Depot, you know, those companies were all started by somebody. Um, in many cases, in particular Amazon with Jeff Bezos, you know, he owned shares of that company in significant portions for a very long time and became a multi tens of billionaire. Um, you know, one could shoot back and say, well, gee, but trying to pick one stock or one company is pretty, pretty risky. And I would say, absolutely. Um, hence the reason why we want to put a portfolio of those kinds of companies together and hope that in the aggregate, you're going to end up with a return over time that's better than the averages. So, and, and, and I think time has proven that that's been the case, but let's back up again and go back to that original example of someone who is, let's say the first person to ever buy the whole market by way of let's call it indexing. Um, what, what ramifications does that have or ha did that have on just generally the economy overall? And I would say that early on, little or none, um, but fast forward to now and, and even as a few years ago and take the words of Jack Bogle himself, one of the you know, grandfathers, the founder of Vanguard, one of the grandfathers of index investing, who two months before he died warned, hey, we might have taken this too far in that so much of the market is now passive that we risk that we're not getting proper valuations uh, in companies to be able to... to you know, trust that we, that what we're buying is actually valued valued appropriately. Um, my good friend George Giller always used to say, you know, passive investors are, are just like parasites on the backs of active managers. Active managers are doing the work to figure out what should remain in the market, and then the passive investors are just kind of tagging along. Well, yes, that's probably true, and so who cares? Well. Not much when there's not very, very many people doing passive investing, but when there's a whole world that's doing passive investing, now we have to worry about, cap about capital allocation and is capital being allocated to the businesses that deserve it. And I would suggest that um, that trickle down flows all the way to startup companies. And uh, the more money that there is that's passive and not having real formal active price discovery being done, the more likely we're going to, we have a chance for for muddling the market or, or, or bringing the bring a more mediocre type of return to the overall market because companies are getting funded or companies are getting value anyway that don't deserve it. So a classic case of what's working for the individual, not necessarily working for everyone as a whole. Exactly. Well, what do you think? Taking it back to Bogle, uh, what do you think his remedy would have been uh, for today? I mean, not that we're obviously you know different guy, different different business model, but do you think you? What do you think is, is the classic indexer's remedy to over-indexing would be? You know, that's a great question. And I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think he answered that question. He just simply pointed out that we're... we're he cheated we're, it by dying. Right. He cheated it by dying. But more that we're just risking exactly what I said, the ability to really understand, you know, what things are worth when there is no 
fundamental legwork being done to try and design to determine what it is or if there if it is it's being done by fewer and fewer numbers and i mean i like to use the example of it's as if venture capital a venture capitalist is literally funding every company that sends him a a business plan um to some degree that's happening today i think that pets.com comes to mind yeah well but i I mean I've, i've argued that that venture capital with as much money as is in it in, in some of the larger firms now is like indexing and, and some they're almost taking that approach of well we'll buy everything and we'll find a you know we'll find a unicorn in there somewhere um so it's problematic even in private company investing but um i i think it, it trickles it trickles down and it shoot and it and it flows up with respect to this problem of thinking thinking that you know doing the work to try and determine what is the right you know, sector, industry, and then ultimately company to be in. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in the context of we think you should be trying to pick sectors, but, um, you know, where should you put your investment capital? Um, if it's, if it's nothing, if, if there's no more of a decision-making process, than you know, some sort of algorithm that suggests these are the 500 companies that are in the S&P 500. I might add, by the way, let's take the S&P 500. Um, I mean, is it really passive? They, you know, S and P Standard Poor's has a formula for what what can be a, a member of the of the Standard and Poor's 500, and so it's not that it's completely passive in that respect. But but even then, I mean, you know, I've observed over time that you know algorithms tend to get um, you know the advantages of of them tend to get you know invested away, if you will, or or arbitraged away. Um, over time. And so uh, is there, is there, is that, is whatever, you know, Standard & Poor's is using as its criteria to put companies in the Standard & Poor's 500, is that something that is actually giving us a reasonable assessment of, of who deserves to get valuation in the market? And I don't know. I mean, we probably can debate that forever and ever, but I also would posit that owning 500 companies is probably not the way to, you know, outperform over time either. Hence, you know, in our strategy, it's through, at least with respect to growth investing, it's 30 to 50 companies and income investing is another 30 to 50 companies. So maybe you own between a 60, 60 and 100 companies in a balanced portfolio between growth type investments and income type investments. But, you know, that's a lot less than 500, um, a lot less than 5,000 in the Wilshire 5,000. And, you know, it's also gotten today is there's so many indices out there Um when you start getting down to, well, which one do you own? It almost becomes stock picking. And so I would say, hey, why not get back to just looking at the companies and determining what are the right companies to be in if you're going to spend a lot of effort in trying to determine what are the right indices to be in? And I think what people are hoping to get out of in passive investing is they're trying to fundamentally get out of decision making, it seems like. And you just can't avoid that to a degree. Well, to, to any degree, Every, someone has to decide the algorithm for what's in the S&P. And then yeah. very, rarely do even index investors just pick one index and go with it. They're, it. Sometimes they're slicing and dicing. Sometimes they're doing a very basic 60-40. There's, there's just always that element of judgment that you can't escape when you're dealing with investing in personal finance. Well, and I would challenge that one of the biggest problems in our industry is that even the quote unquote active managers are not. You know, we hear this term of a closet index fund. You have so much money concentrated in the hands of few asset managers. I mean, it's, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's extreme. Like, you know, 
90-10 kind of thing, 90% of the money managed by 10% of the money managed. It's probably more egregious than that. I think it actually is. But, um, you know, the top firm out there in the world with $10 trillion under management, how do you manage $10 trillion? I mean, they don't. They own every company in the public company in the world. Um, that's a whole nother podcast. But I, I think as we've gotten into that type of environment where so much of the money is managed by so few asset managers with insane amounts of money under management, um, it, it all it exacerbates the indexing because they become like indices themselves. The worst of all possible worlds where you have an indice that's charging, that's, that's, uh, it's basically behaving like an indice, but charging you management fees. Yeah. And it's a feedback loop that's not so positive, right? At least that would, that would be my assessment. And, and this is something that, you know, um, you know, people who are, are, have bought into the idea of indexing, they aren't begrudge them in any way, shape or form. I think Wall Street has largely abdicated its responsibility for what it's here for. It should be for purposes of supporting and enabling the the capital formation for companies that are actually making things and, and building things and and providing services that are worthwhile. Um, we've gotten so far away with that, and financial engineering has become such a, a you know natural part of the financial world. You know, the financial industry shouldn't be such a large industry that it's one of the largest industries out there. It shouldn't be coming up with, this is my opinion, but it shouldn't be coming up with quote unquote products per se. The product should be, um, you know, on the, on the capital market side, we find, you know, clients that, that want to go public or are public and want to raise more money. And we then go back to our investor clients on the other side of the equation and raise money from them and facilitate that transaction. I think that's a that's the, that's a very positive aspect and a necessary thing in a free enterprise economy. Um, as we've gotten further and further away from that responsibility, and I think we really have um, some of it, not the fault of the, the the financial services industry. I think a lot of it has to do with regulation and how where the limits have been put on financial services firm on Wall firms on, and on Wall Street firms um, in being able to uh, you know act in those types of capacities that so they've had to come up with other ways to make money that hence the financial engineering like what's the new fandango way that we can wow the the customer base into you know buying our financial product that has all these whiz bing ideas or surrounding it and you know bells and whistles and and i guess at the core of what we're trying to do is staying just very true to the concept of we're going to look for businesses we happen to have the opportunity to invest in them by buying them or pieces of them in the public markets. Um, and then we're going to treat our ownership of them as if we were the owners of the business. And that's, it, it, you know, it's not something regardless of what's happening in the market, you know, we're seeing horrendous activity, particular for our growth companies right now in the market. It's just been horrible, you know, but think about it in terms of if, if again, if you were running a business, if you own you own your own business, and everything around you is, is, you know, emotional and insane and people are panicking and losing their heads about them. Are you going to just, you know, close your business? I mean, sure. Sometimes that happens. You, you know, people get to a point where they realize their business isn't the right place to be. It's a painful process, but sometimes that happens. But the reality is, is most businesses gut it out, especially if they're good businesses, right? If they have a solid business, a solid um, product or service, they're going to ride through the difficult times. 
um, have will, will probably have uh, contingency plans in place that will allow them to be able to do that. Those are well-run businesses. And so we want to approach our portfolio. We want to approach investing the same way. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett calls it Mr. Market. and Mr. Market tends to get a, in a bad mood every now and then. And usually that creates great opportunities. I think this one is no different. They're all a, a little bit different in the nature of them. But as far as what ultimately happens is eventually value sets in and people start jumping into those companies that um, that have been beaten up. And in this particular circumstance that we're in right now, um, and this is where, again, active versus passive, if all you're doing is being completely passive, you don't really know or care what it is that's going on in the companies in which you're invested through a passive product. Uh, one of the things that you don't get to do or one of the things you don't have is the ability to actually talk to or or even analyze the individual companies to determine, hey, these are real people running a real business that's actually pretty darn good. I, I mean, I realize that the the Mr. Market is <laughs> throwing their shares away right now, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm just going to sit back and, you know, act like uh, I would if I were, you know, putting my house up for sale. And then I realized that, oh, wow, it's not a very good time to sell my house right now. Uh, maybe I'll take it off the market and wait a year um, or six months or something like that. I, I mean, if, if you approach things that way, I think most people, most investors would, would be a lot better off. What, and we're going to touch on, we've touched on a lot of things and we're trying to keep this, the episode in a reasonable bite-sized, uh, well, big bite-sized format, uh, especially as we, as we introduce uh, our, our, the firm to, and the podcast. But from a behavioral standpoint, it's no secret. We're recording in the spring of 2022. It's, as you said, it's a bad time for growth. And Broadly speaking, though, a lot of the behavioral concepts that that the passive investors uh, do trump uh, do trumpet apply, I would say, to what, what we're doing as well. But what are you telling investors? It's it's a rough time, as I said. Growth is getting punished, um, but everyone's getting punished to some degree. No one's no one's uh, escaping it. Crypto's down, uh, growth's down. Uh, I guess the bonds are doing okay better, but well, large bond, longer term bonds are getting hit. But you're saying the rates are going up, right? And bonds, you're and you're still in bonds. You're dooming yourself to getting killed by inflation. So it's right. Like, so so what are you telling? Uh, what are you telling investors? We we've been spoiled, and even as bad as COVID was, there was a clear reason for it. And most people who thought about it for two seconds thought it'd be a V-shaped recovery, and it was. It really didn't test our patience that much. We've got a lot of syst- systemic. Uh, problems with uh, with the economy, with government regulation. There's and inflation, uh, and there in a lot of ways, part of me feels like we don't deserve a recovery. But we all know it sooner or later it turns around. So, what are you telling kind of a spoiled uh, investing investing crowd, um, and myself included? That uh, and me too. Yeah, exactly. We've all, we've <laughs> what all am I used telling to just, myself? You know, wait, wait two weeks, it'll get better. So, yeah. Um, I, I do think that this is di- it's different this time to the extent that to your point about a V shape, I, I think this is going to take longer and, and investors are going to have to be investors. They're going to have to you know, realize that instant gratification is 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 not necessarily the best thing for them. Um, we're going to have to ride through this. And but it doesn't change. Uh, and, and what I'm telling people is what I've told them forever. And this is 30, almost 37 years now. Um we own companies through multiple market and economic cycles. And that comes from our 
mentors, uh, Dick Taylor in my case, and his mentor Thomas Rowe Price, that you know made made the comment about the great fortunes in the country were made by men that owned companies for decades, same companies. Um, they didn't shake themselves out because there were you know ups and downs going on in the economy, and 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 mind you. Um, those guys were doing it back in the 60s and 70s, which were similar timeframes to what we've had. It came off the euphoric 60s into the horrific 70s. Um, somewhere in this, there will be also a correction in policy. Um, we haven't done policy very well. Uh, monetary policy has been horrendous, and I think they know it. They'll never admit it. But you know, we wrote a piece back in March of 2020 that said time for a pushback in the way that they were reacting to COVID got our first hate mail. Um, and But I think we've been proven right. I mean, we, the whole emphasis of that, that uh, blog post was, you know, the cure is going to be worse than the disease. Well, we're living through that worst cure now in that 40 plus percent increase in money supply while at the same time closing the economy down um, is going to be something that's difficult to deal with. Now, in, in, in clairvoyant hindsight, could we have said, well, geez, when we had these great runs in the post 2020, you know, post, you know, COVID debacle world, it wouldn't have been great to just, you know, liquidate everything and then come back in right now. Well, yeah, it would be great, but there's also this thing called long term capital gains, which we struggle with all the time. Anyway, um, we've had a lot of those in the last few years as we've uh, harvested companies, gains in companies that we own for 10 and 15 and 20 years. Um, or large in our portfolio, we're largely done with that. Um, and so that's not likely to be an issue. And of course, the market is taking some of our gains, a lot of our gains away right now. That, that will be short term. But how long? I mean, is it going to, is it going to change next week? You know, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, six months. Yeah, that, that's impossible and, and, and not something that we would ever try and predict. But just from 36 years of experience, the feeling it, I have is that. Uh, this may take a bit more because we have a big mess that's been created with the way the policy reactions to this COVID thing. Um, and yeah, we were probably due for some sort of a cyclical change in the economy anyway. And then, and then all of this came about, I think one of the things that, and, and one of the reasons we talk about multiple market cycles and economic cycles that we own companies through that is that, uh, you know, the, 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 the economic cycle um, from policymakers' points of view, per, and I'm speaking specifically at this point to monetary, monetary policy, um, it's as if they think they can repeal the business cycle. You know, the business cycle is, re, you know, everybody thinks of recession. Oh, recession is, you know, this horrible, terrible thing. And sure, you know, in a traditional recession, unemployment goes up and that's hard on people who are losing their jobs. Is it something we like? No, but it's also a normal part of the process of, of a business. Business cycles are normal. Um, and the attempt to try and stop the business cycle from happening has left us with a whole lot of problems. And I think that's at the heart of, of, where, we, of, of where we've gone wrong with regard to Federal Reserve policy, at least, um, and even fiscal policy. Um, it's kind of analogous to trying never to ever get sick again. Exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, eventually we're all going to run out of time. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, on that point. And when you do get sick, it's a lot worse. Yes. I mean, someone who's got a new sick kid every 
every, <laughs> every five minutes, every five minutes now <laughs> dealing with the the fallout. And we were relatively, you know, we were, we weren't super, we got back to reality relatively quickly compared to other, other families, you know, living in the state we live in. So you can only, you can only, you know, overcorrect so long. Absolutely. And I think that's what we've done. There's this, it's, you know, and, and clients might not like to hear this, um, but yeah, I would, I would rather, I mean, especially as bad as things have gotten in this last week or so, but who knows, maybe, maybe it would have worked out better if the Fed had just pulled the banding off and raised 225 or 50 basis points and said, we're done uh, for now. Anyway, you know, we're going to let it go and see what happens. And, you know, part of this process of incremental increases and, and, and I guess they would push back with, you know, there's banking functions that need to adjust to changes in interest rates. Well, it, it's putting too much focus on the Federal Reserve. The focus should be on businesses and them producing either product or services that are useful in helping people better their lives and helping the, you know, other businesses better their prospects for, for success. We've just gotten so far away from this, you know, in the wake of 2008, nine debacle in early 2009, I, I did a speech to a business conference and I made the reference to, we need to get back to investment for investment's sake. Meaning we've been spending so much time, mind you, this was 2009, but we've been spending so much time with this constant finagling of things from a policy standpoint and have, this gets also into the financial engineering from coming from Wall Street, have tried to financially engineer our way through the morass. And, you know, it's like just about everything I've come across in, in business and in life, it, it takes hard work. You just, you know, you got to roll the sleeves up and, and, and do the work. Um, it's, you cannot give yourself a magic elixir that's going to get you around these, these issues that will pop up from time to time. And in the interest of another tagline in our firm, owning well-managed companies in front of fertile fields of future growth, the well-managed companies part of it um, may be the most important certainly is at least equally important to being in front of fertile fields of future growth. But the, the well-managed companies is the remarkable way in which well-run companies manage their way through times like this. And I think what's happened is, is we have lost uh, to a great degree the, our faith in the ability of, of the business person to be able to manage his own way through things. We're constantly, uh, certainly for, on a kind of national and even international level, constantly trying to interfere. Government seems to always want to be coming to the, to the rescue <laughs> Um, when it would be probably better for them to, you know, to hear, thank you very much, just go away and let me keep running my business. Um, so, you know, we've done a lot of this, we've done a lot of this to ourselves. And I would say, jumping on a couple of things that, that you've said is that we talk, we kind of feel like to a degree, again, we don't yet deserve a recovery. You know, there's just, there's just not, there's too many headwinds for this to be easy, but we should also qualify that with, We've been continually shocked over the last, like over the last five years, lots of things have surprised me, you know, in terms of the economy, in terms of society and things like that. So who knows? And I do remember being, when I watched the market on a day-to-day basis, thinking I was a trader in 2009, I do remember it was, the bottom was like March 9th, 2009, March 10th. That was the day. And and yeah, that was the day it bottomed out and it started recovering and it felt too early, Mm -hmm. like at the time. So it's always going to feel too, like this is it. It, it, It's, you're always, it's. You don't realize these things. Only, you realize this is only in hindsight, and it the these recoveries all by definition surprise us. 
they, yeah, almost by definition. I, 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 I don't know whether or not we've repealed that. <laughs> and in some ways, because of what I mean by that is that f- phenomenon of it never feels like it's recovering when it is. And then you look back and you go, wow, March 9th, 2009 was the bottom. Um, frankly, I thought I think it was January 27th this year was the bottom. And here we've gone and gone to set three or four more bo- bottoms, you know, um, b- not being a trader, not really believing in that. I don't believe in it. Um, I still like to look at, there are certain things that bottoms have in the rear view mirror. You know, when you go, go back and look at every market bottom, it has certain characteristics to it that are the same every time. And the problem is, is it can fake you out, <laughs> which is why I don't bank on it. But we'll, we will be able to look back at some point. And, you know, we look back at, it was also March of 2020 where we bottomed in 2020, March of 2009, something about March. Um, honestly, I don't remember where it was in the 2000, 2001 timeframe, what the bottom was, but that was, that was a long process of, of going, yeah. getting, getting ourselves back on track. Um, but you know, we haven't, re- I don't think we've repealed those kinds of things, but what is different. And I, and I do this, think this is very important, um, is that so much more of the activity is being run by algorithms. Now, those algorithms certainly have people behind them, contrary to what a lot of people think. They don't they don't actually run on their own. People program them. But then once they get programmed, then they then they kick in automatically. And I think that's that's significantly distorting markets these days. I think, in fact, I would argue that the market mechanism from a day to day, you know, second by second basis uh, is broken to a great degree because, you know, there was a time where there were humans behind it all over the place that good, bad, or indifferent would be there to kind of um, assuage the the market machinations that might be happening in every give, any given moment. And, you know, when we talk to traders and, we, you know, while we're not a trader, we talk to the guys that do trade when we do place orders, There's, we're placing them with, with people that are trading. And we hear them say, yeah, you know, like two thirds of trades today, we think are, are run by algorithms. They're not, they're not, there's not a human interface necessarily behind them. That's actually pretty amazing. And, and, and frankly, I think a lot of the reason we're seeing some of the wild and crazy volatility that we've got going on today, you know, there's, you know, algorithms and bots running out there that are looking for keywords and earnings reports. And it's actually, it, frightening sometimes how they get it wrong occasionally they literally it's like it's like the 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 algorithm was programmed wrong somehow maybe they had the right idea when they were building the program but then when they actually put it in it got it wrong and they'll get a you'll see a reaction in a stock that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever um because the keyword somehow went in the opposite direction um you know so uh what how do we react to that in some ways for, for folks like ourselves that have this kind of, you know, as much more long-term perspective in multiple market cycles, multiple economic cycles, you know, we may be able to take advantage of that to a, to a great degree. Um, well, let me say not to a great degree, to some degree. And when, where we can, we do. But the idea that we've, and, you know, have had in our, in our shop for years is when things are really insane, like they are right now, we use these ter- this term, be centered, be still. And 
we have found that it's just a whole lot more useful for us and ultimately then for our clients that are entrusting their assets to man- for us to manage that we take that approach because it keeps us from making any kind of silly decisions based on what's happening in the moment. Um, so usually we get much more where we're sitting on our hands in this kind of an environment um, that we're, we're experiencing right now. And that's proven to, to be to our advantage over time once things settle out. Um, so as crazy as those short-term crazy volatility days are, um, and to what extent we can take advantage of it, and we do, okay, fine. But at the end of the day, uh, it really does kind of play into the way we do things because we, I don't want to say we don't care about those things because they make us extremely frustrated and angry sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's just not something we're going to react to. And so what we're interested in is, you know, we are just finishing up the first quarter's earnings season. And what we're always more interested in is what's happening inside the companies. And there's no doubt that supply chain disruptions and labor shortages and things like that are affecting some of our companies. Um, I, I would say they're, pro- they're, they're affecting all of our companies. It's just some it's actually showing up in, in, you know, in their results, but it's relatively muted. I mean, it's, it's not like, um, you know, these guys have just been obliterated in their business because of labor shortages and supply chain problem, supply chain problems. Is it, is it problematic? Absolutely. Is it an, another byproduct of the, the, the cure is worse than the disease? You bet. But most of our companies are, are managing really well through it to where you're not even seeing it. And the ones that are getting affected more by it, eh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, it's affecting them and it's not, it's by no means lethal. Give it some time and it'll sort itself out. I think that is part of what's taking longer. And that's part of why what I said earlier about, hey, this one might take more time. It's because of that. It's because those are some things that just are going to need to get sorted out over time. Um, and, and I might add that just like pulling the Band-Aid off and having the Fed be more aggressive right now and just kind of get the whole interest rate thing and admitting that, that would be admitting that they're behind the curve, which they won't do. This is not something they will do. But doing that probably would end up being the better thing, even if it meant even more pain in the short run for the markets. Um, equally, these issues over supply chains and labor and what have you um, may ultimately result in a more resilient workforce and better supply chains in the future. Um, let's face it, we, we as a country anyway, um, got to be relying on foreign sources of manufacturing and supply chain Uh, to an extent that uh, may not have been healthy. And fixing some of that could really in the long run be much better for our country overall and much better for the market um, or the economy. Let's say the economy and then and then ultimately for markets. The uh, I think we've seen over the last few years is that a recurring theme is rarely do uh, emotional reactions lead you to success. Most definitely. And we've seen that over and over again. That doesn't mean we're robots. We have principles, but but especially emotional overreactions. But when people are guided by their emotions, they, they largely make mistakes. And again, that doesn't mean that doesn't rule out, you know, princi- principles, morals, ethics, caring for uh, religious beliefs and things like that. But as a, something that very quickly as we wrap up illustrates uh, this because remember, whenever you have to, whenever you make that decision, uh, throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm done with it, going to cash. Even if you get it right on the front end, at some point you got to reinvest. 
and you had a client early on in your career who made, well, almost made the trade of the century. Yeah, it was October 19th, 1987. I was a couple of years in the business, just really, you know, wet behind the ears to say the least. And uh, it was a client that I inherited from somebody that left. And on that day, October 19th, 1987, they went completely to cash. Uh, and that was, so the October 19th, 1987, I mean, that was a day where the market went down like 28% in one day uh, or something like that. 22%, I think it was 6% the day before. So it amounted to 28%. Uh, I think we were around 2,200 in the Dow going to like 16 or 1,700. Um, 1999 was still on my books, even though <laughs> yeah, it was basically a, a non-client, but still, you know, still had, still had the cash there. 1999, still in cash, still never in. got back. Um, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but anybody who's been around a bit knows what happened in the nineties for stocks. And for that matter, what was happening in the eighties when that little, you know, other computer driven <laughs> debacle happened in, in October of 87, um, yeah, it, it's, it's extremely difficult to make those buy and sell decisions. And so, you know, we just don't, um, and I've never seen anybody be consistently right in trading in a trading strategy, in a pure trading strategy where that's, they set out to trade. Um, I've seen some people have successes, but almost inevitably those successes lead to failure. It's kind of, it's kind of like the, you know, gambling and putting it all on red and, you know, if you get lucky and you win big, you best walk away because the next time when you put it on black or red or whatever, uh, you're probably going to lose it all again. Um, really hard emotionally to, to make those decisions. And, and, and so if you've planned properly, you don't have to make those decisions. And while it's painful to go through these things, um, and there is always somebody who needs money in the worst possible time. And we would always try and help them work through how do we raise what is capital that we need for, for them to do whatever it is that they need to do it when it's an inopportune time to, to take money out because they have to. Um, more often than not, we don't have those situations. I mean, we don't, we don't advocate um, trading on margin and, or, or using margin, um, using debt effectively and, 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 and prudently can work. Um, but the idea of setting out to, 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 you know, I'm going to buy $3 million worth of, of, of equities with, you know, a million dollars or million and a half dollars worth of, of cash is that's not something we would ever advocate. Um, and that keeps us out of trouble and keeps our clients out of trouble in these kinds of periods. Cause as again, as painful as it is, um, you know, we, we wrote an article one time about Rip Van Winkle, the Rip Van Winkle market. And I think it was in 2008, 2009. I think we wrote it actually later, like in 10 or 11. And at that point talking about, hey, if, if, if someone were pulled the Rip Van Winkle and fell asleep for the last six, seven years and woke up in 2010, they, they wouldn't have known 2008 and 2009 even happened. Um, so, you know, ignorance was bliss in that. And, you know, as long as they don't repeal the, our ability to be able to have a, a, a free business, to go into business and to buy, bus, you know, parts of businesses like in the, you can in the public markets, um, we, we will have that happen again. We will be in that situation where you could have closed your eyes through all of this or not seen any of it. And, it, and you, you know, whether it's a week, a month, six months, a year, two years, you, you will look back and go, wow, did that really happen? 
you know. Um, so we'll see when. Don't know, but it, it's out there somewhere. Well, and uh, as we say, this too shall pass. So yes, sir. And that brings us to the end of episode one. So Jerry, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Doug. And uh, you're signing off uh, episode one of the Long Only Podcast. Mm-hmm.